Um, hello, everybody, and Kia Ora. Uh, we are continuing our series of webinars on the Austroads Updated Pedestrian Planning and Design Guidance. And in today's session, we will talk um, about space allocation for pedestrians in road cross sections. Uh, we have about 850 people registered for today's session, so welcome to you all and thanks for joining us. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a Communications Officer at Ostroads, and I will be moderating today's session. First of all, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the regional people of New Zealand. A little bit about Austroads. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian uh, transport and traffic agencies, and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. Um, the project that we are focusing on today was delivered under the Transport Network Operations Program, which is managed by Richard Tomplay. A little bit of housekeeping. So our presenters will speak for 40 minutes uh, and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. Uh, we have prepared a few documents for you to download uh, for today's session. So on the right hand side of your screen in the handout section of your sidebar, uh, you will find the report. Uh, today's session is based on presentation slides uh, and the navigation graphic uh, that explains how to find pedestrian content in the Australian guides. There is also a question section there, so please use it to send us your questions for the Q&A uh, at any time during the webinar. If you could name the slide number that your question relates to, that would be very helpful for us. Um, you can also use that same question box um, to let us know if you have any technical problems. Uh, we have Anne Randall helping us behind the scenes, so just let us uh, let Anne know if you need any help. Um, just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, uh, the issue most likely is with your connection. So leaving the webinar, closing the browser and rejoining the session by your registration link usually uh, fixes that problem. The session is being recorded um, and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. Um, and if you listen to podcasts, you can also find Australia's in the podcast app. Um, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce our presenters for today, um, Anne-Marie Head and Jeanette Ward from Ebley. Uh, they presented uh, the first webinars we had in May and June last year uh, on pedestrian planning concepts and methods for pedestrian service. So we will first hear from Anne-Marie. Uh, she is an Associate Director at Ebley, uh, where she is a key member uh, of the People and Places team, uh, which is focused on planning and designing complex urban environments for safe and healthy people. And Marie has a specific interest in planning and designing for active travel, uh, active travel modes and understanding their benefits. Uh, and Marie will provide a project overview and will talk about road space considerations for pedestrians and the road space allocation process. Jeanette Ward will then take us through cross-section elements and how they relate to pedestrians and will share some examples of how space uh, for walking can be allocated. Uh, Jeanette is a technical director at Ebley. She's also a member of the People and Places team. She has a diverse engineering background that allows her to see urban environments from a range, from a range of perspectives and a specific interest in street design. Um, so, welcome to you both, and I will now hand over to Anne-Marie. 
Thanks, Ekaterina, and um, kia ora koutou, everybody. I'll now take you through um, a project overview. So, um, as Ekaterina just mentioned, this webinar is one of a series of seven about planning and designing for pedestrians. The first two we um, ran last year, um, they were more about the planning side of pedestrians and also how to measure pedestrians. This month we're presenting five webinars and today's one is the first. You can see the topics and dates for each webinar here on this slide. The webinars are a key output from the research project which I will now briefly talk you through. Firstly, some acknowledgements to the project team. Robin Davies from the Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads was the project manager for Ostroads. Big thanks to Robin and her colleague Michael Langdon who both promoted the inclusion of training webinars as part of the scope of this project, and that is what we're doing today. The consultant team was made up of Jeanette and I and our colleague Dave Smith, and also thank you to Cameron Munro from CDM Research for his contributions to the project. A key part of our project team was the Ostroads Working Group, which included a number of jurisdictional representatives as shown in the list. For those of you in Australia who may not be aware, the New Zealand Transport Agency is now also known as Waka Kotahi. We'd like to thank all of these people for their assistance throughout the project. So walking as a fundamental human activity is important success of urban areas and often provides the key link connecting land use with transport systems. It is also an important contributor to health and well-being of our communities. There's a renewed drive to prioritise investment for walking in Australian and New Zealand jurisdictions and therefore providing good guidance for <coughs> where planning and designing for walking is essential. Prior to this work, the guidance within Ostroads, in particular the Guide to Traffic Management and the Guide to Road Design series, weren't up to date um, with respect to providing for people who walk and did not always reflect international good practice. So this research um, project was to fix that. The research phase of the work was undertaken in 2019 and so we recognise that there's new techniques and practice evolving all the time. Uh, there's other Ostroads research that's ongoing um, that is also relevant um, to pedestrians and that has been published since we completed our work. For example, integrating safe system with movement in place for vulnerable road users is a research report that has um, some crossover with what we're talking about today. Our work was completed pre-COVID-19, so we don't have any specific guidance regarding how to deal with social distancing challenges in this webinar, although the philosophy of providing adequate, roads, uh, adequate space for walking still applies. And I just want to point out that Ostroads develops guidance with input from the jurisdictions and it's acknowledged that some jurisdictions will retain their own guidance for some topic areas. Our research firstly involved identifying gaps in the current guidance around pedestrian planning and design. And then we set about preparing content to fill the gaps. This resulted in new content and modifications to existing content within six parts of the Guide to Traffic Management. And those changes have been made already. We also identified changes and additions to content uh, in the Guide to Road Design series, and these will be made in due course. 
the guide to road safety wasn't part of this project as it was being updated by others at the time. Given the information about planning and designing for pedestrians is contained in many of the guides, we've developed a navigation graphic that might help you to find what you're looking for. This version here is still in draft, but it's available for downloading from the handout section of your toolbar, as Ekaterina mentioned, so have a look at that. This webinar is about, to is about how to ensure pedestrians are catered for appropriately in road cross-sections and the impacts on pedestrians of various cross-sectional elements. We found that the guidance with respect to catering for pedestrians when designing a street was spread through the Guide to Traffic Management and the Guide to Road Design parts. And so bringing a webinar, pulling a webinar together that pulls all that topic around together was important. Another useful webinar for this topic is the Austroads Traffic Management Training Unit. Um, there's some different um, aspects in there that give um, guidance on prioritising pedestrians, cyclists and transit users over car users and it illustrates how different users make different claims on scarce road space. Today's webinar will focus on providing examples to illustrate the points made, noting that these examples are not included in the Austroads guides. So to help you, we've included references to the part that the guidance comes from in the bottom left-hand corner of each slide. Guidance that was updated um, through our project is shown in yellow, and new guidance that we um, created is identified in green at the bottom of the slide. Just a reminder here that the design-related updates we recommended are still to be incorporated into the Guide to Road Design, but the bulk of the recommended changes are included in our suite of webinars. Um, and, and also to note that the specific um, part and section numbers for the Guide to Road Design quoted in this webinar are likely to change in the near future as the um, parts are being reframed as part of a different project. So just be aware of that. An introduction to um, road space allocation. So road space allocation um, has a definition in the Guide to Traffic Management Part 5, and it is the management of available road space on a road or road network by the application of appropriate design and traffic management techniques in a manner which ensures that the necessary balance is achieved to meet the mobility, accessibility, safety and priority needs of road users. So noting the necessary balance should also include the place needs of a street, and we'll talk a bit about that today. Road space allocation or reallocation can be required for a range of reasons. It could be that a new road or street may need to be built a change of mode priorities may need to be reflected, for example, as the result of a network operating framework. The amenity of the street may need improving, for example, as part of a town centre upgrade to increase the number of visitors or shoppers, or a safety improvement project, or perhaps a maintenance upgrade that offers the opportunity to change the layout. The example shown in the image here was a street that was rebuilt following the Christchurch earthquakes. The street was previously very wide and had little greenery. The rebuilt street has narrow traffic lanes and indented parking bays on one side and street trees on both sides. So we think a much more pleasant street. Many of the Austroads guides offer guidance on road space allocation, as I said before, but the key guides um, for this 
topic are listed here. They are the Guide to Traffic Management Parts 4 and 5. Um, they offer guidance on considerations required for various modes. In our research project, we added new content to these guides to reinforce the pedestrian considerations. As I mentioned earlier, the Austroads Traffic Management Training Unit, the particular one called Road Space Allocation and Road Use Priority, is another useful resource for you. There is also obviously local jurisdictional guidance that you will have and international guidance such as from NACTO and Transport for London. In fact, the, the NACTO Urban Street Design Guide shows nicely the benefits when a car-oriented street has the road space reallocated to create a multimodal street. The example here uses people per hour as the capacity measure and shows that reducing traffic lanes and replacing them with bus lanes, cycle facilities and wider footpaths, while still remaining, retaining some parking, actually increases the people per hour capacity nearly threefold. So from 12,000 people per hour to 30,000 people per hour. The change of space also has safety benefits, such as reducing the pedestrian crossing distances, hence the exposure, and also adds greenery for attractiveness and shade. But transforming streets in this way won't always be easy. When embarking on road space allocation projects, a range of issues and challenges can arise. These need to be worked through during the design process. Some examples are that the available space cannot accommodate all modes. The community may have differing views. Um, often business owners can be focused on retaining parking outside their businesses. And physical constraints such as utilities can be very expensive to move. This recent headline in Christchurch is an example of a reallocation project to improve walking and cycling. Um, and it's a fairly typical headline, I'm sure you'll agree. I'm now going to work through some key road space considerations for pedestrians. So pedestrian space should cater for the needs of all types of users as defi defined as pedestrians under the legislation applying in your ju jurisdiction. Austroads does have a definition for pedestrians and it was updated as part of the, our project. It now includes people on foot, people with impairment, so people using wheelchairs, people um, in or on wheeled recreational devices, so things like rollerblades, roller skates, skateboards, scooters, personal mobility devices, motorised mobility devices and wheeled toys. Our first webinar last year looked more closely at the diversity of pedestrians and how to cater for their needs, so please refer to that one um, if you missed it or want to recap. Note that pedestrian space does not just include space for the movement of pedestrians, but also space for activities such as waiting to cross the road, resting and social interaction. We also need to balance these against the movement of pedestrians so that things like pinch points are not created. Here's an example which I'm pleased has now been sorted out um, by defining the edges of the dining area to allow more footpath space so someone can get past. Jeanette will cover the pedestrian movement aspects of road space allocation shortly, but let's look a little more at aspects such as amenity, as these also contribute to the pedestrian needs within a road space. Street amenity is important for encouraging and supporting people to walk. 
This can include street trees for shade and an attractive streetscape, artwork, fun activities such as trampolines in that picture there, and comfort features such as drinking fountains and seating. Whilst the design is being developed, you need to ensure that a range of other aspects are not compromised that can have an adverse impact on pedestrians. For example, you need to ensure that personal security is not compromised by adopting crime prevention through environmental design principles, also known as SEPTED. I put a reference there at the bottom to the New Zealand guidelines, um, but I'm sure there are others out there. The example here shows that street trees, while providing an attractive streetscape um, in that top image in the daytime, can create dark spots at night, as shown in the bottom picture. This particular example has now been resolved through a recent streetscape upgrade. There can also be impacts on other space requirements and maintenance, and always remember to consider the impact on people with disabilities. Again, refer to our first webinar last year for more discussion around that. Moving on to a process for road space allocation. There should be an integrated approach to the process of um, allocating road space, and it, it's bigger than just talking about pedestrians, obviously. It's important to define some project objectives, and this requires an analysis of the context and how the area or street is being or will be used. Our second webinar last June about measuring pedestrians might be helpful for the context setting aspect for the pedestrian part um, of your project. The process then would go through the development of options, assessing the options and identifying a preferred option with engagement with stakeholders and the community along the way. It's very important. In terms of implementation, tactical urbanism is a method that has become popular over the last few years. Tactical urbanism includes low cost, usually temporary changes to the built environment. They can be a good way of piloting a change to build community acceptance of street changes. Temporary installations like reallocating traffic or parking lanes to other uses, for example, wider footpaths, can be trialled as shown here on High Street in Auckland, that top picture. Depending on the result, this could lead to a permanent installation. The diagrams shown below, which are from the Tactical Urbanism Handbook produced by Waka Kotahi here in New Zealand, show how a project that restricts vehicle access could progress from a demonstration event on the left through interim installation and then a permanent change. In the first webinar last year, we introduced the nine characteristics that help create walkable environments. And these can be used to develop and assess the design. So have a look at that first webinar for more information. And we'll be talking about these again in our upcoming webinars. Jeanette will also go through an example of applying these characteristics um, after she has outlined the various components that make up a cross-section. And finally, there are various methods or tools to assess street designs. You can use the design principles outlined in the street design guide that applies to your jurisdiction, such as the Auckland Transport Guiding Principles shown here in this slide, or you can use specific project objectives. You can apply the relevant movement in place framework, or you could adopt the Transport for London Healthy Streets tool to help you. The important thing is to ensure you have agreed the way the design will be assessed before you do it. Okay, just a reminder to, um, if you have any questions, to send them through to us. And if um, you can, please let us know the slide number 
your question relates to. I'm now going to pass you over to Jeanette to go through the various elements that make up a street cross-section. Thanks, Emery, and kia ora everybody. Road reserve width can be limited, and how the space is allocated within that width is very important. Each element shown in the cross-section here is now going to be discussed in terms of the benefits to and impacts on police trends. It is important to consider all these elements, as often people assume the footpath is the only thing they need to think about for pedestrians when they're developing a cross-section. We will start with footpaths, as they are the key movement space for pedestrians. But as you will find out, the other elements need to be looked at through a pedestrian lens as well. Mid-block crossings and intersections will be covered in the next two webinars. And we will also talk more about shared space streets in, in the upcoming webinar on planning and designing for pedestrians and activity centres. The other thing to think about is um, the speed environment. So we talked more about that in our first webinar. So today we're just focusing on the space. Footpaths are for the use of pedestrians, and in some Australian states, also cyclists. Footpaths are located either adjacent to the roadway, or they could be separated from it by landscaping, outdoor dining, separated cycleways, or parking. The decision as to whether a footpath is included on both sides of the road, or only one side, um, will depend on your local jurisdictional requirements. So in New Zealand, we have district plans, which talks about um, footpath requirements. But you also need to think about the connectivity to the wider pedestrian network and adjacent land use. This example here from Christchurch has two footpaths on the side of the street. One is under the veranda for those accessing the shops or seeking shade and shelter. And the one adjacent to the street are for those who might be wanting to cross the road at some point and are seeking a more direct route. I'm now going to talk about the new footpath width guidance that will be integrated into the road, a guide to road design shortly. But just note that the width of the footpath may need to be greater than the recommended minimums in some situations, such as a pedestrian crossing point where you need some more width to allow people to pass those who are waiting likewise at a bus stop, or where service poles or structures restrict the width, or where higher pedestrian volumes are anticipated and outdoor dining might be present. The width of a footpath is dependent on its location, its purpose and the anticipated demand, both current and future. We debated using volumes of pedestrians um, in our guidance, but we, we worked this through with the working group and agreed that it would be quite difficult given all the different um, contexts. So instead we have adopted a low, medium or high demand in conjunction with the likely context. But remember, people do need to use judgment here. The new table will define the minimum clear through width route for the predicted pedestrian demand. In the context also, we will, these are going to be added to guide to road design part 6A in the near future. The absolute minimums are updated, so I will now go through each of these demand scenarios, because obviously that table is too small for you to read. A low demand scenario could be a low, density, low density residential street or an industrial area. 
The recommended width is 1.5. This is okay for a wheelchair user or for two people walking side by side, but it's important to allow some space for wheelchair users to pass each other. In some situations, this could occur at driveways, but if not, then regular widening is required. We have noted that in New Zealand, many councils are adopting a minimum width of 1.8 for residential developments to accommodate more mobility devices. So just remember, 1.5 is a minimum. The current, current minimum for this type of footpath in Guide Road design is 1.2. So this figure here that already exists in um, part 6A of Guide Road design just illustrates the points I've made around um, two wheelchairs and the space that they require for passing. So a localised widening, such as shown here, around two metres um, of length could be a good idea. A medium demand scenario could be a higher density residential area or a suburban shopping centre or locations where there are more pedestrians at a particular time of day, such as near schools. The recommended minimum width is 1.8. This allows space for the wheelchair users to pass each other, as I've just discussed. A high demand scenario could include central city areas or locations where there will be high numbers of pedestrians at a particular time of day, such as near stadiums. The recommended width is 2.4. This allows space for a lot of people, like this space, uh, this example here in Queen Street, where you're getting into very high numbers, then 2.4 isn't really going to be enough. So obviously this is a uh, minimum. Queen Street there has a wide footpath, but also has an amenity strip um, between the footpath and the road for seating and trees and rubbish bins, etc. Now we'll just talk a little bit about shared paths. Shared paths are where pedestrians and cyclists share the same space. Users on shared paths have different operating speeds and this can lead to conflict between them and discomfort for all path users. This image shows a range of speeds for various users. It illustrates the importance of the decision on whether to implement a shared path or not. There are circumstances where even a low level of pedestrian use, shared paths will still not be appropriate and alternative approaches need to be considered. Examples of when it may not be appropriate is that the available width is too narrow and cannot be widened, when a walking route is expected to be well used by people with vision or physical impairment or older pedestrians, if high cycling speeds are anticipated, and where there is insufficient space to separate the path from the property boundary, where high fences or landscaping can create intervisibility issues with drivers in exiting the driveways. For comfort of pedestrians, the following should be considered in the decision on whether to provide a shared path or to provide segregated paths. So we, like I said earlier, when a path is expected to be well used for people with impairments, and also the expected cyclist types. If you know there's going to be a lot of high-speed cyclists, um, then you may need to consider segregation. And also gradients. So if a path has a reasonably steep gradient, that is when cyclists can, or other wheel devices can pick up a bit of speed. This example here in Brisbane along the river is a facility where cyclists can travel at those higher speeds and the, and the pedestrians have their own space on the riverside. 
There are some useful charts in the Guide to Road Design Part 6 that help with that decision making around whether to separate or not, and also appropriate path widths. Very hard to read at a scale, so I will run you through an example on the next slide. But essentially these graphs have the number of pedestrians two-way during the peak hour on the vertical axis and the horizontal axis is the number of cyclists. There are two scenarios in part 6a, the left hand being a 50-50 directional split and the right hand graph is a 75-25. These graphs were already in part 6a so they weren't part of our work but we're just pointing them out as a useful tool when you're thinking about how you're going to accommodate um, pedestrians. So here's an example of a scenario where there would be around 700 cyclists in each direction at peak time and say 300 in each direction at the same time. Using the 50-50 directional split chart suggests that cyclists and pedestrians should be split and that should be at least a three metre cycle path and a two metre footpath. So something like the example shown here. Guide to Road Design Part 6A includes a table of widths. Now these widths also need to consider clearance um, to obstacles such as fences. Again, this is existing guidance and um, please refer to it when you have made that decision on if you are going to include a shared path. So moving on to cycle facilities. Cycle facilities can benefit pedestrians as it means that there might be, it's more likely that cyclists will not be on the footpath. They also provide further separation from the moving traffic lane to enhance the walking experience. Separated cycle facilities in particular need careful design to ensure pedestrians are not adversely impacted. For example, if a separated facility is between a footpath and a bus stop, then the cyclists need to be aware that people may be crossing the facility. So a flush area like shown in that bottom photo there might be useful. And also if a mobility impaired pedestrian is accessing the mobility parking space and has to cross a separated cycle lane to reach the footpath, then again a flush surface should be provided on that part of the cycleway. And the top photo there shows an example. Moving on to traffic lanes. So a narrow traffic lane width will help reduce vehicle speeds. That improves safety for pedestrians when crossing the road and can reduce the crossing distance. One-way traffic lanes make the crossing easier as vehicles are only coming from one direction and hence reducing the complexity of crossing the road, assuming that the vehicle speeds are low. Wider lanes will increase the crossing distance and can also increase vehicle speeds if there are no other calming presence, uh, features present. Okay, medians. So medians, both flush and solid, can benefit pedestrians as they provide formal and informal crossing opportunities. They can also allow for additional landscaping to improve amenity of the street and hence the walking experience. But noting that solids could increase the speed depending on the traffic lane width. And they could create severance for mobility impaired if they are solid and no formal crossings have been provided in that solid median. Finally, parking. As with a cycle facility, a parking lane provides separation from moving traffic lanes. A parking lane also provides the opportunity to create curb extensions between parking bays to create shorter crossing distances for outdoor dining areas or landscaped areas like shown in the top photo. 
the bottom photo shows a flexible dining area that could be moved from one car park space to another as land uses change over time. In high pedestrian areas, car door opening or servicing can impact the footpath width. So when you're looking at those clear through route widths, you need to think about what's actually going to be happening in that zone directly adjacent to the parking. So as Emery mentioned earlier, the nine walkable, the nine characteristics that make up a walking environment are a good way to, to have a look at an existing design and a proposed design to see, am I actually making this a better walking environment? So looking at a typical street like the photo above, when we come along and propose a new cross-section. In this case, let's look at the characteristics of accessible, comfortable and pleasant. The footpath is wider with a clear through zone against the building, creating a more accessible environment. The wider footpath also creates space for seating away from the clear route, creating a comfortable environment. There are also trees introduced on the right-hand side between parking bays, and this creates shade and amenity, contributing to a more pleasant environment. So just remember these nine characteristics is a good kind of checklist, something that you have uh, on your wall next to your desk to think about pedestrian projects. I'm now going to run through some examples of how space can be allocated to create a better walking environment and also a few projects that we found um, published case studies for that have transport, transformed the streetscape to the benefit of all users. So a very busy street, very busy pedestrian street in a city could be converted to a pedestrian only street or sometimes known as a pedestrian mall. This photo here is um, Queen Street in Brisbane where when I was visiting it there were people there just generally all throughout the day. A perfect place to create this kind of environment and pedestrian malls are actually a very common feature in most large cities. Or a street could be converted to a shared space street such as in this photo here in Derby Street in Auckland. As I mentioned before, we will talk more about the design of shared spaces in the, one of the future webinars, and I will show you a bit more about Auckland shared space streets soon. So the top photo here shows um, how a traffic lane could be removed on a multi-lane road to increase the footpath width on both sides. So the example there is Edward Street in Brisbane, which I understand used to be, um, a, it is a one-way street and it had uh, three lanes, had four, and one has been removed to create a wider footpath, as you can see there. Also, if a parking lane is part of your cross-section, um, as with the other example I showed earlier, you can just create some spaces in the parking lane to accommodate the needs of the businesses or the locals who actually want to have somewhere to linger, but knowing that potentially that land use could change. Also, traffic could be restricted at one end of the street to be one way and only. This creates more space for seating and reduces traffic volumes, as seen here in Sydney. This project was potentially part of a cycling project, but actually pedestrians benefited from this. Also, if a low volume street is converted to one way, then more footpath space will be available if the traffic lane is removed. In that example there is Fremantle, Western Australia. 
You could also create wide central medians to accommodate pedestrian crossings and trees. This example there in Adelaide has um, quite a wide median and can be used for a number of uses. The other example here is an old motorway ramp in Auckland, which you may have all seen before. This was a brilliant way to convert an existing infrastructure that wasn't being used to something for walking and cycling. Also, in the past, a lot of bridges over our, through our towns were very narrow, and they also um, had parking on them. This particular example here is William Street in Kaiapoi, New Zealand. The street was rebuilt as part of a town centre upgrade and also because of the earthquake recovery. The bridge over the Kaiapoi River did have parking on each side, no cycle facilities and narrow footpaths with a high curb. The new design removed parking, added cycle lanes, a flush median so that refuge islands could be accommodated each end of the bridge and wider paths for seating to enjoy the, enjoy the view. So the two case studies I mentioned um, do have uh, write-ups available, so I've provided the link there for you if you want to find out more information. Swanson Street in Melbourne was transformed some, transformed some years ago to strengthen the identity of, city, identity of the city and enhance user experience and access for shoppers, visitors, cyclists and transit users. It also aimed to create a more attractive and safe public spaces, and these are the aspects we know result in a more walkable, envir walkable environment. So even as you can see there in the diagram, the footpath wasn't actually widened, but all of the other changes improved the pedestrian experience. And post-implementation surveys found that pedestrian volumes actually increased. So as I said, this one has more details in the project case study undertaken for the Global Designing Streets Organisation. Fort Street in Auckland is another great example of converting a normal street to a shared space street to better integrate the area into the surrounding street network and provide greater pedestrian priority. There are other streets in central Auckland that have also been made shared space streets. Initially, there was some resistance to this, but I understand now that retailers on other normal streets are asking for their street to be converted to a shared space. That is success. So I'm now just going to quickly show you where this new guidance can be found and then we're going to open up questions. The, I won't read this all out but there is um, some references to the different parts and sections and as Emery mentioned the guide to road design um, references will change in the future. Ekaterina is now just going to talk about, um, oh no we're going to go to questions. <laughs> Emery's going to come and join me, so we're going to do a bit yep. of a shuffle. Thank you very much, Anne-Marie and Jeanette. Um, very interesting presentation and uh, great project. And we have lots of questions, so just a little note to our audience. Uh, we will try to take as many as we can, but if we um, can answer your question today, we will do it in writing and we'll email a copy of the response to everybody after the session. Um, so I am just going to go with the first question here. Um, it relates to slide 26, I think. Oops, wrong one. Sorry. Is it 26? Yes, yeah, so I probably just the wrong one, but uh, doesn't really matter. 
Um, so the question is in relation to straight trees. So it's fairly common for um, requests to have uh, trees for shade um, and improved streetscape. So um, it is good for um, for the day period and um, um, it's good for a day period. The question here is, is there a preferred method to balance this desire for trees but maintain safety and security at night, which may cause uh, casting of shadows from lighting? So what your thoughts are on these? So that sort of question really highlights the importance of multidisciplinary teams when you're undertaking street design. So a, streeting, a street lighting engineer is very important to have part of your team um, because they will be able to help you understand how that will how that tree can actually cast the shadow. Having the landscape architect also be able to tell you how big the tree will be eventually is really helpful. So that's another key person on the team. And then in a lot of projects where you have um, quite an intensive landscaping um, you know, plan, it's actually good to get a septet audit as well. So there are people who are qualified to uh, assess your project on that crime prevention through environmental design aspect. So again, they're another key person on the team. So it's not something that one person can do. Street design is all about getting the right professionals in to help answer that question. Thanks so much, Jeanette. Um, I'm just trying to figure out so everyone can see my slides. Uh, that's good. Um, so next question. Um, does these new guidance um, address the visual impaired people's requirements? I can answer that. So uh, yes, it does. We've tried to um, make sure that uh, references to people with different sorts of impairments, including um, people with visual impairments, are uh, referenced throughout the guides, but bearing in mind that there are different standards, um, for example, for tactile indicators, which um, blind and vision impaired people use um, at crossings, they um, are slightly different um, in Australia versus New Zealand. So you need to go to your relevant standard for, for that aspect. But um, we have tried to incorporate the principles um, around that through the guides. Yeah, and I think Anne-Marie did um, a really good job of explaining the diversity of different pedestrians in that very first webinar, which included um, people with vision impairments. So do go and have a look at that. Thanks so much. Um, so, and we have a scenario here, um, and the participant is asking for your advice. So basically, um, it's a city centre street, uh, part of, uh, of the CBD ring road um, that will be dropped. Uh, so the speed limit there will be dropped to 30 uh, kilometres per hour uh, fairly soon. Uh, they have three existing zebra crossings and they want to add a fourth one, which would be a raised. So they, they ask him, would a raised um, platform be suitable or do they need to make it a pedestrian crossing to be consistent with the other three? So it is a 480 meter long road with three pedestrian crossings within 100 meters of each other. <laughs> Very detailed. Yeah, yeah so we're going to talk a lot about that in um, the next webinar on Friday. Um, mm -hmm. So 
do tune into that because I think that's probably the more appropriate place to answer this question. Okay, we'll do that. Um, so another question is in relation to slides uh, 37 and, and 40. Um, so how many pedestrians are for low, medium and high demands? Uh, so what are the ranges? So, as I mentioned, trying to put numbers to that will depend on what various jurisdictions um, want to put against those numbers, actually. And I think, you know, when you look at that photo there, that's the kind of uh, environment where you'll have some people heading out to take the kids to school, um, heading down the shops during the day, but generally it's quite a quiet residential street. So that's when you start saying, oh, actually, it's very low demand. Um, we have some numbers in the New Zealand guidance, um, <clears throat> pedestrian planning and design guide, which has kind of a peak hour volume. But again, we're finding it's very hard to apply because of that issue that we raised in our second webinar is that no one counts pedestrians. Um, and that's something we need to get better at. So um, for this particular instance, we've just got that low, medium and high and it's based on judgment and looking at the context. And over time, once we get a lot more data, maybe we can start putting numbers against these things. I see, thank you, Jeanette. Um, so our next question, I'm just gonna, uh, very many questions, so I'm just navigating my way um, through all of them. Um, so another question here is, um, so speaking of, um, amenity strips and uh, street seating. Um, so are there any guidelines or requirements for, oh, sorry, wrong one. Oh, yep, that's the one. So are there any guidelines or requirements for protection, protection barriers or bollards to protect those benches uh, from, um, from a vehicle impact? or would road managers be expected, um, expected to use a risk assessment to make a decision about this? I think it does come down to the risk assessment and I know that that guidance has been updated in the um, Guide to Road Design series. If you've got a very low speed environment, obviously the risk is lower and you have to balance up the impediment that a bollard or a barrier can actually create to pedestrians. So. Obviously, a 30k scenario is, 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 you know, unlikely to need that kind of treatment. And if people do go down that path of putting in barriers, you need to be very careful about how it could um, impact pedestrians as well. So it, it's kind of one of those it depends questions, and I think each um, jurisdiction will have a different approach to how they assess um, that roadside protection for higher speed mm. urban streets. Um, so another question, um, one of our participants is saying that often we don't have uh, predicted pedestrian and cycling numbers on the existing. Uh, is there any guidance available on predicting these numbers if a model isn't available? So we talked a little bit about that in our webinar about measuring pedestrians in June last year. Um, so we have inclu included some guidance on how to, I guess, forecast pedestrian demand. It's not an easy thing to do, and I think mm -hmm. over time we'll be getting better at it. 
Um, but there are some examples in there. It's, it's in part three of the Guide to Traffic Management as well, but probably best to go back to the webinar, um, have a listen to that. <coughs> Thanks, Anne-Marie. Um, another question is about sort of um, shared space. Um, so in a scenario where you have a uh, footpath um, and the adjacent business wants footpath dining or to put some merchandise for sale on the footpath. So um, is, there any, uh, is there any guidance um, regarding the width that must remain for general pedestrian use? Um, and is, what guidance do we have for placement of the activity um, on a pedestrian footpath? Um, Ekaterina, if you want to move to the next slide, then I can mm -hmm. talk to the diagram. That one? Uh, sorry, the next one. Okay, that one? Yeah. Uh, the one before that? One before. It just jumped, sorry. Yeah. Yep, so, the um, diagram there shows that clear through route width. And that little scenario, there's got a sandwich board um, on one side and a, a tree grate on the other. So the, the way that this could be managed is I know some um, jurisdictions or you know, councils can create bylaws as well. So um, one particular town I was working with recently had a bylaw about the sandwich boards only being a certain distance out from the wall of their shops um, to make sure that they don't encroach. And they were kind of going all over the place with um, you know, floral displays, you know, goods that they were essentially selling and creating quite a torturous route for people walking down the footpath. The streets in that town have since been upgraded and one of the design features we added was a different paving for that 600 millimetres. So it doesn't require shop owners to go out and actually physically measure it. They know that there are certain areas that they can put their um, goods or the advertising, but everywhere else is um, has to be left clear. So it's a kind of self-enforcing method of doing it, which can be backed up by a bylaw if you want to um, you know, go out and, and enforce these things. And dining areas can also have a leasing arrangement, which clearly defines the space they're allowed to use. And again, you can go out and enforce that. Thanks, Jeanette. <clears throat> um, so our next question uh, is in relation to slide uh, 47 about cycling uh, facilities. So where pedestrian paths cross cycleways, um, similar to the flush bus border, is there guidance as to who should give way, pedestrians or cyclists? Um, it kind of comes down to how the design has been rolled out. So you can see that photo on the bottom picture there is a give way triangle. So the cyclists have to give way. There's a limit line and a give way triangle. So in that scenario, they're saying, hey, cyclists, um, give way to pedestrians. In locations such as the mobility space, um, that's not going to be as frequent. And it comes down to, I guess, that courtesy between users. So if a cyclist is coming down there and a person um, has opened their door and getting a wheelchair out, then they need to be you know, aware of that. And I think a lot of these cycleways are of a design that are long and straight so that you do have that clear vision um, of what's coming up. But generally I've noticed in, in Christchurch, 
or these separated facilities, for example, that they are um, requiring the cyclists to give way at the bus stops. Um, so in relation to sort of like shared zone cyclists and pedestrians, is there any work being done to examine those shared zones where um, separated cycleways and footpaths merge or where there are potential conflict areas uh, where you want to encourage a negotiated sharing rather than a priority, just priority? So councils are doing it in different ways. Um, I noticed when I was in Brisbane that um, along that centennial bikeway, where a pedestrian crossed it, they were using a blue and white checkerboard marking. So it was sending kind of a visual that, hey, this isn't a cycleway, it's not a footpath, it's a shared zone. I don't know if people are monitoring the success of these. Um, it would be great if they were and if they could share the learnings. Um, other people may be privy to that, but I know that. Um, in New Zealand, we do do some trials um, in Auckland around shared path markings and how that was working out and trying to get that right message. And I think that's still an ongoing project here in New Zealand to get that kind of balance. Um, but yeah, I it would be great if people do monitor these things. We are, I guess, guilty as an industry of putting things in and not going back and seeing how they're working out and then sharing those learnings. So that's a real kind of call out to everyone listening to you know, if you have that ability to share your learnings where you make, make signs, that would be very useful going forward. Thanks, Matt. Um, so slides 54, 57, I'll just jump to 54. Um, so how should we um, assess the removal of the flush uh, painted median to allow space for wider paths and cycle lanes? Of painted um, median. Yeah, so that, that's another context thing. So I was working on a project recently where the flush median on the, on the road actually had a lot of benefits for um, the turning movements in and out of industrial kind of commercial driveways. Um, so that helped, you know, prevent rear-ending crashes, etc. And trying to get that balance of wanting to create some more space for another user, but that safety benefit of something that's existing is a really hard tension. Mm -hmm. And then particularly for cycle routes, but that isn't actually the best route, maybe you need to reassess the route. Um, I think for walking, you know, on those routes, you, probably, you might be able to squeeze a little bit more out, probably focus on taking out the parking if you can, but yeah, flush medians come down to what they're actually functioning as now and what their benefits are, and you've got to weigh up both of those things. So it's not an easy answer to give, but it's like it's looking at the balance between. Thank you. Um, so speaking of rural areas, um, have there been any considerations um, given for shared footpath widths in regional areas where the number of users is less than 50 um, people per peak hour. So from the value for money asset point of view. So I think if you 
go to the slide, Ekaterina, that had the graph example I talked through. We could um, Which show one was that. So, you know, yes. when you, if you want to look at these graphs, for example, and you can see that when you start getting into low numbers of users, you're down into, yes, okay, a shared path is fine, depending on the other things I talked about. But, you know, that's showing there that you can get down to a, a two and a half metre shared path. Um, some, I know of some councils that do recognise it's a very low volume and they've decided that maybe they could go even narrower. Um, and I guess that comes down to what those particular jurisdictions accept as a minimum. Um, but yeah, acknowledging that sometimes in these rural areas when you actually just want to provide something, it doesn't necessarily have to provide for overtaking or what have you. Um, I saw it at the weekend I was out in the country and I saw a guy on a mobility scooter going down the shoulder of the road and when I went around the corner there was a lady with um, sticks which she needed because her legs weren't working properly and I was like and she was on the berm and I was like wow there's actually a lot more happening in our rural areas um, that then we realise so sometimes any facility is good but it's really comes down to what your jurisdiction has accepted as a minimum. And I guess that could be a, a minimum in terms of quality of the surface as well so there are cheaper um, you know gravel metal surfaces that might be acceptable in some rural locations and it gives the link mm. that otherwise wouldn't be able to be provided. Um, thanks, Anne Marie and Janet. Well, we're getting close to the end of the webinar. I'm just going to ask two last questions. Um, so, the first one is um, Have you thought of um, sort of have there been any considerations made for design of footpaths, particularly at crossings um, relating to distractions caused by mobile and, or electronic devices? So, you know, we know how we can be distracted and not look at all. Yeah. Well, as Jeanette mentioned before, our webinar on Friday is going to be talking about crossings and yep. next week we'll be talking about um, intersections for pedestrians, so um, we'll be picking up on that. I know there has been some research that Ostroads did on that as well, so we can maybe talk about that at the next webinar. Okay, um, all right, one last question. So uh, have you thought about the concept of Dutch-style bicycle boulevards? where cyclists have priority in mixed traffic environments. Um, has this been considered as a concept worth introducing in Australia's guides? So I think the, what we call them here in New Zealand is neighbourhood greenways, um, where you create low speed streets and you try and reduce the volume as well through various traffic calming um, measures. So I think they are already happening and I think they are mentioned in one of the guides, but I'm not too sure. I think it's just important here to reiterate, we were looking at the pedestrian um, planning and design, not cycle planning and design, but recognising that sometimes the two go hand in hand. So if someone creates a bike boulevard or a neighbourhood greenway, actually everybody's a winner um, because you do get lower tra traffic volumes and lower speeds. It's safer and more pleasant for everybody. And 
I just can't remember off the top of my head where I saw that guidance in Ostros, but um, it is in there somewhere, but possibly needs um, yes. strengthening. We can include it later in the um, yeah. Q&A that we will distribute to everybody because we have lots of questions that we didn't have time to answer, so we can uh, include that in, um, in the material. Um, all right, thanks so much Anne-Marie and Jeanette, and thanks so much to all our audience and um, all of your questions. Um, before we wrap up, I just wanted to say a few words about our future webinars. Uh, we hope that you are already registered for the next four. Uh, sessions on pedestrian planning and design guidance. If uh, if not, please do. Uh, we have quite a few webinars on our schedule, as you can see. Um, there is one that I wanted to bring your attention to. Uh, is on the 4th of March, um, and we will talk about the effectiveness and implementation of race safety platforms. Um, so to view the full schedule, uh, please visit our website um, and register. So thanks again, um, everyone. Uh, after we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. So please take a few minutes to fill it in and, and um, let us know what you liked or you didn't like about the session. We do appreciate your feedback. We read it all and we use it to shape our uh, future webinar program. So thanks again to everybody um, and stay well and safe and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. And we hope to see you next time.